Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture with leading experts on the Bible, hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com, where you can also donate to support our work. Follow us on Twitter at the number two testaments on Facebook or Instagram. All right, welcome to the Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture. I'm Ronnie Cosman. And I'm Will Kynes. In this episode, we're looking at Deuteronomy chapters 6 and 10 with Professor John Levinson. John Levinson is Albert A. List Professor of Jewish Studies at Harvard Divinity School. And among a slew of important books and articles, he is the author of one book that has really, in many ways, transformed the way that many read Deuteronomy and even the Hebrew Bible as a whole. And that's this book, The Love of God, Divine Gift, Human Gratitude, and Mutual Faithfulness in Judaism, printed by Princeton University Press. This is the library copy from Sanford, but I've got my own copy. It's on the way to you know, supply chain issues and things like that. You know how that goes? More than one. You may want to read it again. That's true. Yeah. And maybe donate another copy to the library. So when other people check it out after they listen to this podcast, uh, they'll have plenty. Yes. (laughs) Now, here is how Walter Brueggemann starts his review of that book. He writes, John Levinson is among the most important and most discerning theological interpreters of the Bible. In another time, I might have written among our most important and most discerning Jewish theological interpreters. And Levinson is indeed vigorously Jewish in his interpretive work. But his work is of immense interest and importance for Christian readers as well. So for our listeners, whether you are Jewish or Christian, there's a lot that you are going to stand to learn in this conversation that we're about to have with Professor Levinson. So John, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's going to be a pleasure. John, uh, what first drew you to studying the nature of love in the Hebrew Bible? You know, it's probably the daily recitation of the liturgical composition that's known in Judaism as the Shema, which is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. It's a formal commandment in Judaism to recite that every morning and every evening, uh, the three paragraphs of the Shema. And, of course, it's famous for Deuteronomy 6, for a lot of things, but for Deuteronomy 6, 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. We can talk about what that means. And with all your whatever decha means, all your muchness, all your might, we could talk about that. So uh, I mean, I've been doing reciting that verse uh, all my life. But then add to that the fact that I have this strange tendency to try to think about what I'm saying when I recite liturgies, uh, which I've come to realize over the years not everybody does. And uh, but really energized this was when I first got to graduate school in 1971. That's a CE. And I, uh, I was uh, in an Acadian class with William L. Moran, Bill Moran, who was a famous Assyriologist and uh, Semitic philologist, uh, but also uh, someone who in his previous incarnation had worked a great deal on Deuteronomy. And he'd written a famous uh, uh, article in the Catholic Biblical Quarterly in 1963 uh, called The Ancient Near Eastern Background of the Love of God in Deuteronomy. And that brought a lot of things together and made me realize this love of God uh, is, a, is a difficult theme, often misunderstood theme, but also a very central theme in the religion of Israel and certainly in the continuing Jewish and Christian traditions. So how does this uh, command to love God that we see in Deuteronomy 6 here fit into the book of Deuteronomy as a whole? I think one of the main themes in Deuteronomy as a whole is loyalty to that one God of Israel. Now, how should we refer to this God of Israel? This is the four-letter name. This is the proper the proper name of that God of Israel. It is not God or any of those words. It's a four-letter word that Jewish tradition forbids to be pronounced with its proper vowels. People aren't even totally sure what the proper vowels are. And so in liturgy, in prayer and public recitation of the Torah uh, or the rest of the Bible, it's called Adonai, meaning my Lord. In English translations, you see it as Lord, often in capital letters. Uh, Lord is that name, and uh, uh, other words like Elohim are actually uh, translated as God and so forth. <clears throat> I tend to refer to it as Hashem, meaning the name. That's a very traditional way, Jewish way of referring to Hashem, meaning the name. In other words, loyalty to a very specific deity. It's not just loyalty to the Godhood in general, whatever it is. <clears throat> 
excuse me, the Godhead in general, to divinity, to values, to ethics, all of which are important, but actual loyalty to uh, Hashem, the God of Israel, the God who took Israel out of Egypt and gave them these commandments. And all the way through Deuteronomy, you get a sense there's a threat to that exclusive loyalty. There are other gods, other cultuses, other practices that the author finds deviant uh, that people are attracted to. And they, those other, those other cultists, whatever one of those other sects, I don't know how twice did you want me to talk about sects, but those other sects um, are, uh, have prophets of their own, they have people who do miracles of their own, is a kind of a very delicate, uh, threatened uh, loyalty uh, to the God to whom Israel owes its existence, the people Israel owes their existence, and to whom uh, they should therefore be uh, obedient. So I think that the, that the love of God per se is, uh, is the foundation for all the rest. That is, mm -hmm. that is to say, the love of God is a response to God's love for them, uh, his antecedent love for the people of Israel, and it forms the real basis for uh, obedience, for performing his commandments. Those are very important themes in Deuteronomy. Love, covenant, commandment, the exodus, very, very important themes. And I think if you look at the rhetoric of, of Deuteronomy, the persuasive arts of Deuteronomy, it's trying very hard to secure this exclusive loyalty and this obedience in a time which is really quite threatened. John, uh, what for you is the most difficult thing about uh, Deuteronomy 6? What's, what's hardest to understand for you here? Um, well, do we have all day? Uh, at the linguistic level, I, I think the uh, hardest thing probably something we can talk about at length if you want, namely the uh, translation of that famous first verse. I'm just looking here at the, uh, new, the Jewish publication society Tanakh. Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Uh, alone. And uh, then in, uh, in the NRSV, Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. That's a very open question. It's been debated over the millennia. And it's not a minor uh, point. It's a very, very major point. What do you mean by the oneness of God? Mm -hmm. um, but there are other words that are problematic as well. For example, that word I mentioned a, a minute ago, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your nefesh, which probably means life force, energy, vitality, something like that. And behold, ma'odecha, all your... Now, this word ma'od... Elsewhere in the Bible, except in texts that are effectively quoting this, is an adverb. It means mm -hmm. much. It means very. Love God with all your veriness. Love God with all your muchness. Uh, what does that mean? In the 13th century France, Chizkuni, the uh, Hebrew commentator in 13th century France, said, set your heart and soul to love him very, very much. In other words, uh -huh. he's an intensifier. But it is kind of odd. If you look in, the, in, in mm -hmm. ancient translations, they're not sure what it means either. I know Mark translates it as ishuos, your strength. And mm -hmm. Matthew and Luke translate it as dianoia, your mind. It's very unclear what that, what that means. The love of God with all your, your much. Is it your strength, which would go along mm -hmm. with Chizkuni and that notion? Is it your uh, mind? Uh, or is there something else? Generally speaking, rabbinic tradition, Jewish tradition that you find in Talmudic sources, in the Mishnah, in the Gemara, in Midrash from antiquity. We're talking about roughly, you're talking about the land of Israel and uh, later Babylonia from maybe, I don't know, the first century to the sixth century, something like that. It generally interprets it as wealth, all your property. There's uh, a, a statement I quote in, in uh, The Love of God uh, from a early Midrashic collection that says, there are people whose wealth is more precious to them than their bodies. And Becholmeodecha, with all your wealth to understand that way, is directed to them. You know, it's like mm -hmm. the old uh, joke about uh, the old Jewish comedian, probably long before your time, uh, uh, Jack Benny, his real name was Benny Ko, uh, Kobelski, is, uh, is approached by a mugger. The mugger puts a gun to his head and says, your money or your life? And Jack Benny says something like, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. <laughs> right. Uh, so there are people who are so attached to their money. That's the most important thing in life. So to say, well, you have to love God with your money, not just with your life, not just with your heart, whatever heart means there, which we can also go into. That's that's a very big problem. Uh, in the Mishnah, in this early Jewish 
collection of laws put together early in the third century, the common era, maybe around 200, uh, 220, something like that, in the uh, in Roman Palestine, in the land of Israel, uh, occupied by the Romans. Uh, it translates it this way. It says, uh, makes a kind of pun on this word, ma'od. It says, Behol me'odecha, in all your muchness, behol midah midah, in every single measure, shehum lacha, that he measures out to you, that he, God, measures out to you, no matter what happens, no matter what your circumstances, no matter how good or how bad, thank him and acknowledge him very much. So it, it mm. actually makes a kind of triple pun there, uh, triple <laughs> paranomasia, triple play on words. Uh, muchness, measure, that he measures out, uh, uh, thank, all of which are words that are actually from different roots that sound similar mm -hmm. to make a wonderful Midrashic statement. So that, that would be a very major problem just to translate that. And there are other words also that are, that are difficult to translate in this uh, passage of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. You know, as you describe that rabbinic interpretation, it makes me wonder if it's intentionally vague so that it can just kind of include everything else you've got. Is that a possible way of understanding it? I guess it's possible, or it was so obvious what it meant to the original authors that as time goes on, we lose a sense of the language, and we, which is in some sense an asset, because it means we can fill in. Right? Mm. We, we can fill in uh, as our moral sense develops and as other norms come, come along. So uh, that, uh, I, you know, who knows? It's, it's, <laughs> it's both, it's both uh, one of the great treasures and one of the great curses of biblical scholarship, that so much of it, we don't really know what it means. <laughs> now, you've already described this a little bit, but what, for our listeners, what is the Shema, and why is it so significant? Why is it so important? The Shema, as understood in rabbinic Judaism, ancient Talmudic Judaism, establishes halacha, establishes Jewish law, practiced by observant Jews to this day, consists of actually three passages. The one is the one I've been talking about, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Then there's a similar passage, a little different, probably a reworking of that, in Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 21. And then finally, a different passage. It it's, doesn't sound like them at all, which is Numbers 15, 37 through 41, which deals with the wearing of fringes uh, on four-cornered garments. Uh, it's, it's one of the great fringe benefits of being a Jew. And the... Um, so... Um, those three passages uh, come to, in that order, come to characterize the, uh, uh, the Shema. I mean, people call it the watchword of our faith or whatever. It's something that halakha uh, requires at least male Jews to say every morning and every evening of their lives. Commandments that are not determined by, that are determined by, that are determined by uh, time are not obligatory on women, but really every... Every male Jew, certainly uh, once he reaches the age of accountability at 13, should be reciting that those three passages in a certain way every morning and every evening. But as I say, it tends to be seen as the basis for the commandments in general, for the life of fidelity and obedience to God. So in the Mishnah, which I mentioned a moment ago, that first verse, Hero Israel, that's described as accepting the kingship of God. Kingship of God is not just opposed heteronymously in an authoritarian way. It's something that's ratified. People have to accept it, which is typical of covenant. Uh, and then after that, you go on to, to Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 21, which talks about the commandments in more detail, reward and punishment, and that's considered to be the acceptance of the yoke of the commandments. First, accept the yoke of the kingdom of God. Now you've got the king. He's the legitimate king. Now we accept his commandments. Uh, so in a sense, it's the foundation for everything else. Um, but also, there's a sense in which these, uh, these, uh, uh, this passage gives a number of other mitzvot, another, of command, another, uh, another set of commandments, a group of commandments uh, that Jews traditionally have practiced. Uh, teaching Torah to children, you should teach them to your, to your children. Uh, importance of Jewish education, uh, absolutely essential. Uh, write them on the doorposts of your house. This is the basis of this idea that you take these passages, uh, those first two passages that say that, Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 11, and a little scroll written by a professional scribe, 
there to be posted in the doorpost of the house where one lives and not just the external doorpost, but the internal doorpost, except on bathrooms or storage rooms or whatever. Um, and uh, there's also the fillin, which the uh, English translations of the New Testament tend to translate as phylacteries, kind of an odd, odd translation, where it says you should bind them on your hand and on, uh, you know, and they should be like bundles between your eyes. Uh, well, that's understood as uh, little boxes with scrolls that refer to that practice from Exodus 13 and Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 11 uh, being put in little boxes that are literally strapped onto the arm and strapped onto the, the head, uh, the, uh, on the top of the forehead and the front of the head. And these are, these are regular practices for the observant Jew. So rabbinic Judaism reads a lot of very concrete, specific mitzvot commandments out of this language. The great question is, is this language intended to be so literal that there are actual physical practices that you do, which is how rabbinic tradition takes it? Or was it originally just a way of saying how important it is, never forget it, treat it as if it were bound to your body, as if it were in, there in front of your eyes? You know what I'm saying? Uh, that, there's there's a, a legitimate debate to be had about that. My feeling is by the time you're in Deuteronomy 6, it's, it's, a, it's a, a literal practice. Um, mm -hmm. The idea of, of posting an inscription or something on doorposts, on gates and gates of the city, royal decrees, uh, religious uh, texts, uh, that's not so unusual in the, in the ancient world. And uh, it's specifically in Exodus 13, it's not clear at all what you're binding on your, your arm and, and on your head. But here it's quite clear, it's not very many, these words, whatever those words are, they're particular words uh, that I think probably are being written down. Uh, in that sense, I think rabbinic halacha, Jewish law, probably does uh, correctly render what this meant in Deuteronomy 6. It's a very specific practice. So what is the effect of these liturgical practices, uh, whether it's just reciting this, uh, these words over and over again every day, or going further and putting them actually on your body? What kind of effect does that have on those who practice these things? Well, ideally, it should make it very hard to forget them or to lose sight of them. I mean, there are people, sometimes I'm one of them myself, who can get this kind of automaton mode where you go through the motions and and you don't think about what you say or you rush through a text or whatever or through a religious service to get it over with and have no idea what you said. In some of the uh, Jewish law codes, they even talk about what to do if you're required to say a prayer. And I don't know, five minutes later, ten minutes later, you can't remember, did I say that or not? Now, it's not because you have some sort of memory problem. It's because you're so much on autopilot. Mm-hmm that you simply lost sight of it. Well, the idea is if you take this thing and bind it on your arm and on your head and you, and you put it on the doorpost of your house, every time you walk in the house, you see this, this little case that has those scrolls in it and so on and so on, and you're involved actively in teaching this to your children uh, and making sacrifices in order to have such an educational experience for your children, it's much, much harder to forget it. In other words, it becomes internalized. It becomes uh, ritualized. Ritualized means habitualized, habituated. You know, habits can be good or bad. You can have a bad habit of, I don't know, uh, uh, alcohol or cigarettes. You also have a good habit of doing good deeds or thinking about what God requires of you. Right? The question is, how do you, uh, how do you, how does ritual enable the good and required practices to become habituated? And I think, I think that's ideally what happens. In, uh, in a case like this. Right, and you pointed out how this passage here is just foundational for Deuteronomy, and we've talked with some of our other guests this season about how Deuteronomy is in turn foundational for the Hebrew Bible as a whole. So it'd be important to build a really strong foundation through these kind of pra liturgical practices. Yes, right. right. Yeah. yeah, but I think the idea that uh, your big theological ideas are best likely to become internalized and habituated and, and, and relayed to the next generation mm. if they're very specific practices, very specific habits that are connected yeah. to them, as opposed to grand metaphysical notions that easily, <laughs> easily vanish. Right. Yeah, that's great. Well, let's dig into one of the difficult issues that you've already raised with this passage, which is the debate on how to understand 
verse 4. So the first part of the verse is fairly straightforward. So hear, O Israel, and that here is where we get the name Shema for this passage mm-hmm. that we were just talking about. That's the Hebrew verb, um, the Hebrew imperative there, Shema, hear, O Israel. And then it says, the Lord is our God. That seems pretty straightforward to me. But then we get the divine name followed by the Hebrew word for one. And as you pointed out, some understand this as the Lord is one, but others like the NRSV translators understand this as the Lord alone. So how do you think this should be translated and what's at stake in terms of what translation we choose here? Well, that's a very big question, a very important question. I think there are four translations that generally uh, are current. The first is, I'll, I'll translate Shema as listen. Listen, Israel. It's addressed to a very specific people. The people is just not addressed to universal humanity. It's not universal morals or values, whatever that means. It's very specific. It's a very specific claim to a particular people with, with a particular history and a particular relationship with a particular God. Listen, Israel. The Lord, understanding that four-letter name, the proper name of God, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. That's one translation. That's actually the one I prefer, which I'll explain why. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the problem with that is some people say, if you get into the technical points of Hebrew, that maybe it shouldn't be echad for alone. Maybe it should be levad, meaning alone. Echad means one. Uh, uh, on the other hand, the Lord is our God. If it's the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, if that's how you read it, uh, you also have a problem that that's a little anomalous in Deuteronomy. Hashem Elokeinu is very common in Deuteronomy. It always goes together, the Lord our God, the Lord your God. It's not the Lord Israel. It'd be the only place where you'd have it as a, as a sentence. Uh, although some people point to places like Zechariah 14.9, where you do have a notion of alone exclusively, and that is that God will be one and his name will be one. And people think that alone or exclusively would translate it there. The second possibility would be, uh, listen, Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. The problem with that is it's a little, the second clause is a little superfluous. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Why don't you say the Lord is one? Mm-hmm. Why don't you say the Lord our God is one? Why do you repeat the tetragrammaton? Why do you repeat the, the Shema Farash, the divine name? Uh, third possibility would be, Listen, Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. That's basically what I learned as a little boy of my mother's knee and, and father's knee. And that's what I, that's how I would have translated it in, in those days. Listen, Israel, the Lord is our God. And the Lord is one. Now, what does it mean the Lord is one? Later on in Jewish and Muslim theology, this oneness of God becomes a very important theme, a very important, very generative of philosophy. Uh, what it means to talk about the oneness of God, the indivisibility of God, and so forth. Uh, but is that already an issue in the biblical times? Some people say the idea is to prevent the disintegration of that God, the Lord, into various regional deities. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if there was any evidence for such a disintegration. There's, you might say there are some evidence for regional manifestations of the same God. But was that thought to be a problem that people would be warned against? I would have thought it would be more explicit in Deuteronomy if it were. You know, it might be something mm-hmm. like this. Let's say in Roman Catholic tradition, you have a heavenly personage, the Virgin Mary. But then you have Our Lady of Guadalupe, Our Lady of Fatima, Our Lady of Lourdes, different places where the same personage is thought to have, have appeared, and therefore there's a particular cultus or particular mode of worship that Lourdes associated with, with healing, for example. Some people say, this is to tell you, it's nothing like that. Uh, I, don't, I don't think the pagans, to use an unfortunate term, really thought there were multiple deities behind the various names. Maybe it's trying to prevent that kind of disintegration into regional manifestations. I doubt it. Uh, I mean, I think that uh, uh, Jeffrey T. Gay, I think, says that uh, Ray in Egyptian uh, mythology was the sun, the sun god. And Egyptians didn't think there was more than one sun, as you had. So... Um, I personally uh, would prefer uh, the one that says, uh, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, number one here. But all of them have their their weaknesses. Uh, I think the Lord alone underscores this great theme in Deuteronomy of exclusive service, that the covenantal suzerain, the Lord in covenant, 
doesn't share his lordship with anybody else. Doing that is, is akin, is, is a form of, uh, of idolatry and undermines the entire system. Uh, but I admit that it's not uh, 100% clear. I remember I looked at uh, Richard Nelson's uh, Deuteronomy commentary in the Old Testament Library series, and he describes the various options as unique, incomparable, and unitary. In the end, he prefers alone also. But certainly unique, incomparable, unitary, all these things play a role in the history of Jewish and Muslim, and I guess Christian exegesis as well, thinking about the oneness of God is a very important theme. Even though this may have had uh, a relevance not to how many gods there are, but, but to the exclusive loyalty to that God alone of his covenantal partner, the people Israel. In verse 5, we encounter this key word, love. Um, what does it mean when the text says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might? What, what does that mean to love the Lord? And how can, like, can the text command people to love God? So you, in, in your book, John, uh, you say this. You should read the book so people can run out and buy it. They can pause. They can pause and go to Amazon <laughs> and just buy this thing in multiple numbers. So, in your book, The Love of God, John, you say, yes. but what are we to make of the next verse? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. One might think that it expresses only an option, though the ideal option, but not an obligation. For how can an emotion be commanded? How can we be required to generate a feeling within ourselves? Can you talk a little bit about what, what does this mean to love the Lord our God? Well, in those ancient Near Eastern treaties that I mentioned, these suzerainty treaties in which a, a greater king, an emperor, tries to secure the loyalty in alliance of a lesser king, there are places where he's, he, he calls for the love he does describe his underlings as loving him or being commanded to love him. Uh, they're, they're very good uh, analogies. Moshe Weinfeld and others have found very good analogies, including in the Neo-Assyrian treaties, 7th century treaties, the uh, vassal treaties of Esarhaddon and so forth, early 7th century, uh, which people, critical scholars would say, is the period of Deuteronomy. And their love clearly has to do with loyalty, obedience, and not, and, and especially fidelity and alliance. Uh, I don't know how much of how many of your listeners will have any memory of the day when there used to be NATO, which still exists, but also the Warsaw Pact. Mm. NATO was the Western powers. The Warsaw Pact was dominated by the Soviet Union. And, uh, well, you couldn't be a member of both. They counter each other. They check each other. You couldn't belong to, to both. If a member of the Warsaw Pact like Hungary say, you know, I'd like to belong to NATO too, it's going to destroy the whole idea. So love has to do with that uncompromising loyalty, and again, to say it for the hundredth time, obedience to his commandments. Now, um, therefore, I agree with the person I named early on, uh, William L. Moran, that uh, in the ancient Near East, love is not solely an emotion. We moderns think of love as something we feel inside, subjectivity. There's a tendency in modern society, especially modern Western society, to think of uh, all religion as basically a matter of subjectivity, idiosyncratic personal experience, emotionalism. Uh, uh, I would caution against the assumption that the emotional language in the Bible is only emotional. Uh, I would also caution against the idea that I think it's become more popular in recent years that it's not emotional at all. It's just purely formulaic legal language. It has, there's no feelings involved. And the truth is human beings are complicated. That You can't really separate the external from the internal, the objective from the subjective, act from affect, action from affect, as I put it in that book. Uh, so I think there's a danger of subjectivity. There's a danger in the assumption that feelings come first and actions are just feelings brought out into the public social world. Mm. Uh, often, in fact, actions can generate feelings. Mm. Uh, they can encourage feelings. It's, it's a hard to make a divide between subjective and uh, objective self and the subjective self. Uh, people are always assessing what they're doing. They're always having feelings. They're always overcoming resistances and temptations or yielding to resistance and temptations. Uh, but actions uh, 
will also generate feelings and loyalties. I mean, I think of people who, I don't know, take their child to some religiously sponsored daycare because it's the nearest one to their house and uh, has a good reputation, but they don't have anything to do with that religious stuff. But that just happens to be a nice little place to take my three-year-old. And then you run into them five years later and you see they're actually quite religious. They belong to that congregation. They're very active there. How did that happen? You get into kind of a mode of socialization pattern, a, a certain kind of habit, and one thing uh, grows. And next thing you know, without even realizing, you believe it. You yeah. didn't believe it five years ago. Now you believe it. Or you're doing it because other people are doing it. So I think it's hard to separate those two things. It's not just an emotion. I still think most moderns they love, they think of sentimentalism. Right. In America, especially, they think of religion as sentimentalism. And I think that's that's quite dangerous. I think, in fact, it's a kind of a, a, a inseparable amalgam or whatever the term would be of, of a, a, a feeling, an emotion, uh, and external uh, actions that express it, but also generate it and reinforce it. Right. And I mean, even thinking about our earlier discussion about the ritual of reciting the Shema uh, is an action, and it could initiate an emotion uh you might correct. do that without the emotion mm -hmm. and then the emotion would come uh yeah, now, i think that's correct i think people often come to believe what they say if you yeah. can't stand somebody and you force yourself to smile and say hi how are you today <laughs> probably your hatred of this person will uh, shrink over time <laughs> right i hope so yeah. I mean, i've never tried it but uh, <laughs> but, uh it uh, you, you hope that will happen Actions. I, I, I once told a joke about two behaviorist psychologists that pass each other on campus one day. One said, "Hi, how am I today?" In other words, your external behavior does, to some degree, influence and generate uh, your internal state of mind. And I wonder if the next verse helps us with this. So, verse six: Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. What does that mean to keep a commandment in your heart? Well, in the Hebrew Bible, the heart can be a uh, locus of emotion, but it also is a locus of thought. The way to say someone thinks something is to say they said it in their heart. I think of the famous line in Psalm 14, Psalm 53, uh, the, uh, the fool has said in his heart, there's no God. What does it mean to say it in his heart? I think it's 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 thought. Uh, have something on your heart means to keep thinking about it. And Deuteronomy doesn't want those commandments to be forgotten, to slip away, sort of like you study a foreign language or something, and 10 years later you realize you have no idea what it means anymore, and how did that happen? I used to be good in it, that sort of thing. Uh, so uh, the extent to which you keep them in your heart, I think it means think about them a lot. Because mm -hmm. the text also says, talk about them a lot. Teach them to your children. Or be writing them on, on, on doorposts of your house and on your city gates. And, uh, you know, bind them to your body. Uh, again, it, it, there's a great fear of forgetfulness. Uh, Deuteronomy 6 will go on to say, and when you come into the land, you're going to benefit by all kinds of stuff that you didn't make. You'll benefit from cisterns you didn't dig or vineyards you didn't plant or whatever. And uh, you're going to think, you know... I don't really have to be loyal to God anymore. I mean, I, I'm living a good life. So that fear of forgetfulness, losing sight mm -hmm. of, the, of the source, that, that, that's a, really a fear driving a Deuteronomy very, very strongly. Uh, the idea is that those words, whatever they mean by the words, they should be central to the Israelites' life. Mm -hmm. They shouldn't be allowed to, to be gradually displaced by other concerns and values and so forth. And I think when they talk about love that way in that exclusive sense, it's, it's kind of like this. Maybe you do a lot of things in your life. Maybe you play tennis. Maybe you practice piano. Maybe you watch TV. Maybe you buy my books constantly. All kinds of things you do. But, uh, not that those are all of equal value. Uh, but, uh, nonetheless, and then maybe you are a religious person. You engage in religious practices. Well, I think Deuteronomy wants to say the animating center of it all is what I'm calling the religious practices. That's the mm -hmm. animating center of the self. That's right. what's in the heart. That's what you're thinking about and acting on and feeling. The other stuff is fine, but it shouldn't displace. It shouldn't be that that the religious, so to speak, you know, the service of this God is one among many things that you're you're involved in. 
Right. In your book, The Love of God, Divine Gift, Human Gratitude and Mutual Faithfulness in Judaism, published by Princeton University Press and available on Amazon and wherever you buy books. Uh, could, you, could you repeat that? No, I'm just yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's not just about Deuteronomy, right? So it starts with Deuteronomy, but then it talks about how this idea of the love of God that we encounter here is something that's important for our understanding of the Hebrew Bible as a whole and even beyond. So could you expand that a little bit? Well, you know, a lot of people think that God's love for Israel and Israel's love for God, uh, that pervades the entire Bible. And uh, actually, uh, it's not all that common. Um, even that language of exclusive loyalty is not always phrased in terms of love. Uh, what happens at some point early in rabbinic Judaism, and also early in the history of the church, is that people come to read the Song of Songs as not a group of beautiful love songs between a couple of, I don't know, young adults, horny teenagers that long for each other's bodies and chase each other over hill and dale, which is a kind of plain sense reading you might think of the Song of Songs. I assume you've read it or maybe you're waiting mm -hmm. for the movie to come out. <laughs> um, but the... Uh, but the but, uh, Judaism, Judaism already in the time of the Mishnah, Judaism already in the, in the first, second century, is reading that song of songs as a set of love songs of God and the Jewish people, uh, expressions of love and longing for each other, manifest in various events in the history of redemption. In other words, when did they say this? Well, they said this at the Sea of Reeds, as they thought they were about their story. They said this at Sinai. When did God say that? He said that when he called Abraham. They try to read the whole biblical narrative as an expression of love all the way through. It's like in the wisdom of Solomon, wisdom, Sophia, becomes the animating force behind the behind the, the history of redemption. Uh, uh, or in uh, the New Testament, Hebrews 11, faith, pistis, becomes uh, what manifests all these, these and, and drives all these uh, events. Well, here the idea is it's love. It's Israel's love for God, the love of God as an objective genitive, and also God's love for Israel, and the love of God as a subjective uh, genitive. That then comes to suffuse the Bible. So why did God take Israel out of Egypt? Well, Deuteronomy says in the next chapter, Deuteronomy 7, because God loved your ancestors and made a, a vow to them that promised them this land. Uh, you don't deserve it, uh, but God loved, fell, in love, fell in love with your ancestors in terms that I argue in the book actually are, have an erotic uh, connotation to them. Hashak, he, 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 I don't want to say he got the hots for you, or took, but he took, took a passion toward for you, mm -hmm. for your ancestors. And so now the Exodus comes to be seen as motivated by God's love. You don't see that in the book of Exodus itself. Uh, and uh, so in that sense, uh, the whole Bible is infused with this idea of the passionate love of God, God's passionate love for his people and his people's obligatory love for him. And this has uh, analogs in Christianity uh, and repercussions in Christianity. Uh, Christ, uh, Song of Songs, uh, or Canticles, as it's sometimes called, as uh, Christ's love for the church and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Uh, or uh, the, the, the great emphasis on love you have in the Johannine tradition, the Gospel of John, the Epistles of John in the New Testament. All this, I think, ultimately has one of its roots in this Deuteronomic uh, love. Of, uh, a lot of people say, well, that's allegorizing mm -hmm. the, uh, the uh, Song of Songs. I don't think it's exactly the right word. It's not reading it according to its most literal plain sense. That's obvious. But it is reading it as a piece of canonical scripture, attempting to place it within the rest of the scripture and wondering who are these anonymous people, this, this young man, this young woman longing for each other. Who are they? And who is this man who sometimes appears but often is gone and the woman longs for him? And, and, and there's a longing for a consummation that's not totally clear ever takes place. Uh, well, that might be... And the God of Israel and the people of Israel. And the God of Israel appears and does something, and then people long for him. He seems absent. Tremendous catastrophes happen. So I think they're trying to place it 
But then the canonical scripture is a little different from reading as if it were a philosophical allegory, as if mm-hmm. the male speaker is truth and the female speaker is virtue or something like that. I, I think, I think right, it's a different right. phenomenon. Uh, but that's one way that the love of God gets suffused throughout the Bible. Right, right. <laughs> Uh, verse 7 says, recite them to your children and talk about them when you're at home and when you are away and when you lie down and when you rise. What is being envisioned here? Are they specific commandments that are supposed to be taught? Um, like what, what's expected? Are they supposed to be teaching the whole book of Deuteronomy as a whole? What, what do you sense That's going a, on here? I, I wish I knew the answer to that. I can take a, <laughs> a guess. Some people say it's these words. What are these words? Well, the previous chapter uh, gave uh, presented the Deuteronomic version of the Decalogue. Deuteronomy 5 presents the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. I don't like the term Ten Commandments. Of course, I don't observe very many of them either. Uh, but uh, I don't like it because actually in in the Bible and ancient Judaism, I don't know any place where it says Aseret HaMitzvot, Eser HaMitzvot, the Ten Commandments. It's Aseret HaDvarin, the Ten Words, which is where you get the word Dekalog, Dekalogoi, the Ten Words, these Ten Utterances. Because in Jewish tradition, rabbinic tradition, there are actually 613 commandments in the Bible. These mm-hmm. ten are especially important, but there are 613. Uh, but uh, some people think, well, those are the words you should be reciting. Some people think maybe that's what they're telling you to do. Don't forget what I've just been talking about at great length there, I, Moses, uh, uh, in Deuteronomy 5. And don't forget them. Remind yourself. Keep, keep reciting them. Write, write them down. Don't, don't, don't forget them. Um, may other people think it's, as you suggest, a large part of Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy itself, or some subsection of Deuteronomy, in which case we could ask which part, because Deuteronomy has a complicated history of development itself, and there are passages that rework other passages. That second paragraph of the Shema, Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 21, seems to be a reworking of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Uh, so, uh, as I say, it's unclear also how literally such images were to be taken. Are we really supposed to be constantly talking about these, whatever these things are? Uh, as I say, Jewish tradition derives very specific ritual acts from this text, the recitation of the Shema morning and evening, the mezuzah, the tefillin, the, you know, the, the, the doorpost, the, uh, the, uh, what's strapped to the arm and the, and the head and so forth. Uh, but we really don't know exactly what the texts are, what the words are you're supposed to be uh, you're supposed to be repeating. Maybe it's this specific text, maybe it's something larger, maybe it's the whole Deuteronomic corpus, maybe it's the Decalogue. Uh, so I'm glad to clear up your question by saying I really don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess this relates also to our discussion of the verses 8 and 9 about the, you know, binding them as a sign on your hand and fixing them as an emblem on your forehead. The question of, like, is this literally what Moses or the text here is expecting that people would be just constantly talking about th- these things, reciting them to their children and talk about them when you're at home and when you're away, when you lie down and when you rise. Is that a literal expectation or is it a um, symbolic gesture towards the thoroughness of the commands? That's another very big question. Is it a kind of rhetorical exaggeration? Constantly keep this in mind. Don't never forget it. Whatever it is, uh, you know, Write it on the inside of your glasses or on your contact lenses so you're always seeing it, right? Uh, uh, make sure your earphones are constantly playing it, you know. Uh, is, is, is that a rhetorical exaggeration or is it to be taken as a, a literal practice? As I say, rabbinic tradition, and it predates rabbinic tradition, uh, takes them literally. You have these, what I talked about with the fill-in or phylacteries, mm-hmm. mezuzah, or the little case with the scroll on the doorpost of the house. Uh and they take these these texts and uh, others that talk about them and put them in in those uh, in the, in the boxes strapped to the arm. Have those texts from Exodus 13 and Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 11 that mention doing such a thing. And uh, the uh, the mezuzah put on the doorpost of the house. That little case has the first two paragraphs of the Shema because that's what it says. Write them on the doorpost of your house. Uh, and uh, it's interesting when you go to Qumran, when you go to the Dead Sea Scroll uh, community, uh, they have to fill in. They have those phylacteries that also include the Decalogue. Mm-hmm. They actually have the Decalogue written there. And the Nash papyrus, which is around, I guess, the second century BCE found in, in uh, Egypt, uh, is a Jewish text that has 
both the first paragraph of the Shema and the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, right there next to each other. So it may very well be those were thought of as one text that people thought about and recited uh, constantly, or it may be a rhetorical exaggeration, but what keeps, I think, rhetorical exaggerations and theological convictions alive are actual practices, bodily, physical practices. And uh, I think part of the genius of Judaism is the way the Jews have been kept alive and kept their identity uh, or in many lands over many, through many persecutions and many uh, uh, pressures to assimilate uh, uh, precisely by these very practices. So let's move on to verses 10 to 15. These verses envision the people entering into the land and prospering within it, but then give a warning. Take care that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. That's verse 12. If they do forget and worship other gods, Moses warns them that in the Lord's jealousy, he would destroy you from the face of the earth. So how does this warning correspond with what we actually see in Israel's history? Yeah, I'm going to have to be inadequate in answering that as well, because it's hard to to answer objectively. You know, how can we ever measure the degree of fidelity or defection of a whole people? How can we ever measure? How can we ever get a statistic? You know, um, I was reading a book a while back where the person says, well, the people of Israel defected from Hashem, defected from the Lord at the episode of the golden calf. Well, a lot of biblical texts say that. If you actually do the math in Exodus 32, the Levites, who prove uh, faithful to uh, to God and Moses, they uh, only killed 3,000 people. Now, if you want to correlate this, maybe irresponsibly, historically correlate this with the men and the figures, well, you got 603,550 adult males of military age, of whom 3,000 out of over 600,000 are engaged in idolatry, and you say Israel defected from God? It's, it's very hard to quantify these things. Mm-hmm. Certainly the Deuteronomistic history, the Book of Kings, ascribes the fall of the kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, to the sin specifically of the king, uh, in, the, in the case of the southern kingdom, uh, Manasseh. The Book of Kings, Second Kings, ascribes the fall, the defeat, the Babylonian conquest to the fact that this king Manasseh proved faithless and encouraged what the nomination sees as idolatry. And, uh, and so in that sense, uh, the, all those Deuteronomic curses uh, came into effect. It's interesting, Chronicles, the book of Chronicles in its uh, uh, parallel, has Manasseh repenting being taken off in, in, mm-hmm. in handcuffs and chains and repenting and being restored to his kingdom, interesting enough. Uh, but we should also remember that uh, alongside all these dire warnings uh, and the conditionality that they presume, you know, is if you don't do the right thing, you're going to be sick and poor and exiled, etc., etc. Uh, there's also an unconditional grant of land to Israel. Because of God's love for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, according to Deuteronomy 7, this irrevocable grant of the land of Israel to the people of Israel, which the sins of the people of Israel cannot cancel out. Mm-hmm. And there's also in Deuteronomy uh, a, a vision of future repentance, renewed obedience, uh, returning. In Deuteronomy 4, you see, yeah, you're going to go into exile, it's going to be terrible, but you're going to repent, you're going to return, you're going to have renewed obedience, and you will return uh, to uh, the uh, the land. It's interesting that in the Jewish tradition, the, the biblical verb that then is developed to mean repent is also a verb that means to return, lashuv. Teshuvah, mm-hmm. in the sense of repentance, you don't see that, that noun in the, in the Bible, in the sense of repentance, but it, it involves turning around, returning to God, and also returning to the, the promised land. So it's not just conditionality. There's also the theme of unconditionality. Mm-hmm. And, and that's part of what you get in the subtitle of your book, Mutual Faithfulness. There is this commitment in both ways that we see in the covenant between that's God right. and his people. That's, yeah. that's right. I think, I think the love of God is both uh, objective love for God and subject of God's love for the people Israel in, in uh, that model. Uh, at the end of the chapter, children 
come up again. Uh, Moses says in verse 20, when your children ask you in time to come, what is the meaning of the decrees and the statutes and the ordinances that the Lord our God has commanded you? Um, how does Deuteronomy go on to answer that question and explain the meaning of its statutes and ordinances? And what does this explanation say about the nature of the commandments? You know, it's, it seems like perhaps it's not like an appeal to uh, to discerning from nature, you know, the, the rationale from the commandments. Could you talk a little yeah. bit about that, John? I think if they answer with a review of the Exodus and the gift of the land, and the gift of the laws that Israel is supposed to observe. Uh, so when the child says, what's the meaning of all these laws? Well, the meaning is God took us out of Egypt and uh, out of the house of bondage, and uh, we, we owe him something. Now, that answer uh, uh, in the Passover Seder, I should say, in the Passover Seder, in the Passover banquet and the liturgy, the Haggadah, the, the book, which is the kind of libretto, to the uh, Passover liturgy that the rabbis devised that's observed to this day, uh, that there, uh, the answer is, with this, this is the wise son asking this question. The wise son of the four sons says, uh, you know, what do all these laws mean? And uh, the answer is, uh, well, uh, there's the exodus and so on, but, but, but you specifically should answer him that, when the temple stood and sacrifices were still possible, the Paschal lamb, the, the lamb sacrificed on Passover, had to be the last thing one ate before retiring. Right? You don't have an afikoman. You don't have a, a, uh, a dessert. The taste of that meat was the last thing one had before one, one went to sleep. So you could have dessert, but you better maintain a, uh, a piece of the Paschal lamb. Now the temple doesn't stand, and already in rabbinic times the temple uh, it was not standing. It was destroyed in 70 by the Romans. Uh, the idea is a piece of matzah, a piece of unleavened bread, symbolizes the Paschal lamb, and that's the last thing one eats before retiring uh, that night. Some similarities between that piece of matzah symbolizing the lamb and the Eucharistic notions in in uh, Christianity, the bread being the body or symbolizing uh, uh, the body of Jesus. Uh, so, yeah, you're right. The the justification is not natural law. Uh, these are these are not values. These are not norms from some perennial wisdom that anybody whose head is grown straight anywhere in the world should be able to see. Uh, but it is also true, having said that, I, it's also true that there is some eagerness in Deuteronomy to say there is a kind of wisdom in these norms, in these laws, in these commandments. I mean, let me read to you from Deuteronomy 4, 4 through 6. You must observe them diligently. Okay, we've been talking about that. For this will show, Deuteronomy 4, 4, this will show your wisdom and discernment to the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say... Surely this great nation is a wise and discerning people. Wise and discerning, like the terminology used for a, a classical sage in Proverbs or for Joseph in the mouth of, mouth of Pharaoh. Uh, for what other uh, great nation has a God so near it as the Lord our God uh, is whenever we call upon him? And what other great nation has statutes and ordinances as just as the entire law that I'm saying before you today? In other words, the assumption here is that the outsider, who was not a member of the people of Israel, who didn't, who wasn't brought out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, doesn't have this special covenantal relationship, can still see something very wise uh, in in these norms. And I think Deuteronomy has a fair amount of this, this we might call wisdom tradition, humanistic tradition, something more like you might see in Proverbs. This was Moshe Weinfeld's great uh, uh, insight that there is the, probably Deuteronomy is influenced by diplomatic language that uh, is um, is uh, used by courtiers who are sophisticated, have an international cosmopolitan focus. They're interested in what the outsiders say, what the other peoples will say. And the idea is, don't think that other people are going to say, what are you doing all this crazy stuff? What are you sacrificing lamb and circumcision? Where's all this nutty stuff coming from? But on the contrary, they're going to say, there's a lot of wisdom here. And it must be a very wise and discerning people. And also they have a God very near them. Who else can say that? That's, that's part of the Deuteronomic theology also. So, no, it's not natural law. It's not values. It's not timeless. 
uh, historical wisdom, but neither is it just, uh, in Deuteronomy's mind, something that's totally uh, uh, irrational and just God said it, so I do it, end of story. In general, Deuteronomy is a little more rationalistic than other other as other corpora of literature in the Pentateuch, in the, in the Hebrew Bible. It's less focused on the whole, the cult center, the place, the temple, the whole, the what went on internally in the temple. It's less focused on priesthood. Uh, it's, it has a, has a different feel to it, maybe a little more international and cosmopolitan. Okay. I mean, you might you might say also that it's 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 a reasonable response, you know, to give to your your child, right? If your child asks, "Well, why do we keep these laws?" I mean, it's fairly reasonable to say that, "Hey, God brought us out of the land of Egypt and did all these wonderful things, and so we keep the commandments that He has, you know, allotted to us to keep." Like that's a very reasonable response, also. Right. I think. So, it, it's, as, as know, opposed to a response that might just say, "God told him, told you to do it. Just shut up." Um, or, or a response that I'd say, well, it's my ethnic tradition, my grandparents did it, my parents did it, and so right. that, that does a lot of, you may have noticed there's a lot of youth are not exactly uh, energized by that explanation. Yeah, right. Or even in a, a response that says, well, we reasoned from first principles, or we looked at the right, nature right, around right. us, but instead it's very relational. Yes. And even that passage in Deuteronomy 4 the first thing that the, the nations notice is what other nation has a God like this God? And then they notice and the laws that are as just as these laws. So relation, you can't separate. I mean, this is one of the things that John is pointing out here. You can't separate the relational from the commandment. Those two things are so integrated with one another. Now to explore that a little more deeply, we're going to just look at one other passage here in Deuteronomy uh, so the word love, the Hebrew ahav, it appears several more times in Deuteronomy, 21 to be exact, according to accordance when I did a search. But in one passage, Deuteronomy 10, 12 to 19, that verb is particularly concentrated. It appears four times in just eight verses. So to conclude our discussion, I thought we might look at this passage briefly, and I'm going to read it for us. So now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? only to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his decrees that I am commanding you today for your own well-being. Although heaven and the heaven of heavens belong to the Lord your God, the earth with all that is in it, yet the Lord set his heart in love on your ancestors alone and chose you, their descendants after them, out of all the peoples as it is today. Circumcise then the foreskin of your heart and do not be stubborn any longer, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who is not partial and takes no bribe, who executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and who loves the strangers, providing them food and clothing. You shall also love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So what does this passage teach us? What does it add to our understanding of the nature of love in Deuteronomy? It's a very powerful passage. It stresses the specialness of Israel as God's chosen people, not chosen because he's some tribal deity. He owns the entire world, right? It's sort of recomposing or representing what you see in, in uh, Exodus 19, as Israel is about to, uh, as, is approaching Sinai, about to receive God's revelation. Uh, you know, the whole earth is mine, but nonetheless, you're supposed to be my sigula, my special uh, treasured people. So God is, Israel is God's chosen. We're chosen for mysterious reasons. I think the mysterious reasons here are akin to erotic passion. Hmm. In 1015, it says, Hashak, God set his heart on you. He, he could see the passion. He knows where that term sometimes has a sense of real erotic passion. It's not just some bloodless, abstract notion. Uh, and so that's one aspect. God is this universal God. And on the other hand, the universal God is something amazing. He has reached down and formed a particular people on it has made a special relationship with a particular uh, people on earth. Uh, but it also draws out the ethical implications of that. That's one of the lovely things about that passage. Uh, the ethical implications have to do with the treatment of those who are vulnerable, easily victimized, people who really uh, uh, have no other uh, support. The orphan is the fatherless person who uh, does not have a father to defend them. The widow who uh, may be in a very uh, precarious situation, or what they translated the Gatorine, they translated as the strangers, the resident aliens, the people who are outside 
the normal system of land ownership and tribal affiliation, whatever their origins are. Uh, God does that. He provides them food and clothing. And therefore, you also should love the stranger, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. In other words, uh, this having received this unmerited, gracious gift, you don't just sit and enjoy it. You then uh, practice the underlying ethic, the ethic that underlies God's own action towards you, towards others who are in a situation similar to yourself. That's, I think that's a, a very powerful passage that adds kind of ethical imperative to all this, what may seem to be ethnocentric uh, theology. Yeah, it's really striking that you have this high praise appreciation for the fact that God would choose to love a specific people. But that does not lead then to a kind of exclusivism, but actually an inclusivism towards loving the Garim, the strangers among the people who would presumably be from other nations as well. That's right. It's striking that those two things get connected so closely together in this passage. Yeah. I love what it says in 1014, although heaven and the heaven of heavens belong to the Lord your God, the earth and all that's in it, yet he still set his heart on you, still hashak, he still uh, felt this love for you. Uh, it's not a renunciation of the rest of the world. It's not as if it's just a tribal deity and, and, uh, you know, there's, a, and there's a, a, uh, an allusion to a creation ethic, which is inherently much more universal. But the universalism does not set aside the particularism, and the particularism does not set aside the universalism. These things interact in ways that are very easily misunderstood by people who think of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, as ethnocentric on one hand, or who think of it as universal philosophy, perennial wisdom that uh, is just uh, out there for the taking. It's a much more subtle, uh, uh, delicate relationship of universalism and particularism. One final question uh, on this passage, which came from one of our Twitter followers, Matt O'Kelly. So I'm going to ask it here. So uh, what we have is a close connection here between the love of God and the fear of the Lord. Now, in normal English usage, these concepts, they don't fit very well together, loving and fearing. So how do they relate here in this passage or Israelite thought more broadly? I think in this, these passages, I think in, in the Hebrew Bible in general, the love of God and the fear of God are not intention. I think the text can, can talk about one and the other almost in alternation. I don't think they stand in intention. I think it's a choice to love God or fear God. I think the fear of God in the Bible, by and large, means being overwhelmed by the awe or overawed by God's majesty and splendor. Uh, and also... Uh, and therefore being committed to observing his norms, right? In other words, when uh, Abimelech in Genesis 20 says to Abraham, what did you see that you did this? You tried to pass your, your wife off as your sister. He said, I thought there was no uh, fear of God here. Right? Fear of God there means something like decency, doing the right thing, mm -hmm. but also often has a sense of being overwhelmed by God's majesty. Uh, I don't see the two as being intention, the fear of God and the love of God in, in the Hebrew Bible. They're pretty much synonyms. Great. Well, John, thanks for uh, taking your time to walk us through uh, Deuteronomy, uh, De Deuteronomy 6 and 10 in particular. Yeah. Uh, but one of the uh, last questions that we like to ask uh, our uh, guides who help guide us through these passages is, uh, is there something you'd like to blurb for us and for our audience, whether it's some a book that you've read recently or something you've picked up at the, I don't know, the garden variety store or something <laughs> like that, or, you know, a movie you watch? Is there something you'd like to recommend to? I love the, uh, well, I call them novels, except they're historically researched. They're not exactly novels, they're not fiction. By Eric Larson, I'm now reading The Devil in the White City, uh, which is okay. about the... Uh, Chicago World's Fair of 1893. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, I remember I read a number of his books, uh, uh, Dead Wake, which is about the Lusitania. A lot of very interesting, uh, uh, very gripping uh, evocations of a period well-researched as history, but uh, written with a novelist's uh, eye. Mm. Uh, I can also close with a kind of homiletical statement about, uh, to, to my fellow religion professors in various places, who won't be happy to hear this, but I really think that there's an interaction of one's own living the religion with the academic study of religion. 
that ideally should involve some cross fertilization, some challenges back and forth, but also cross fertilizations. I think a lot of biblical scholarship today is focused on the idea of critical study as having simply to debunk religious commitments. Mm -hmm. I think that's getting stale. I think a lot of the humanities are now debunking the classic sources, the literatures, the paintings, and you know, legal arrangements and so forth that they study. And I think that's I think that I think that's uh, not got a long shelf life. I think there's a a symbiotic relationship between affirmation and critical study. I think a lot of academics has, has moved so much towards critical study that it's forgotten that, and therefore in the humanities is in decline. Is there an author or a book or an article that you might recommend if people wanted to think further about that? I don't know. I'd have to think uh, seriously about that. Uh, I myself have tried to address it in various places, and Walter Moberly has written some good things on this. Uh, it's something that needs much more mm -hmm. serious study. I mean, ideally, religious studies should be open to these transcendent claims without necessarily requiring transcendent claims if it's in a pluralistic religious environment, which of course uh, some, some places aren't. Uh, but uh, increasingly, I see that the, the, there's a kind of debunking based on social science. Everything that now becomes power relations, often a very simplistic ahistorical mode of analysis. And uh, I think that's like sawing off the branch uh, mm. of the tree which we're sitting. I, mm. I, you saw off the branch, you fall. And I think that's uh, actually happening in a lot of academia today, which is why increasingly students are one reason among many, that students are increasingly moving towards STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and making universities, uh, in effect, uh, vocational schools. Uh, in part because the humanities don't present the ideals. They shouldn't be presented in an acritical, uncritical way. They shouldn't whitewash all the ugly negative things. But they also have to be aware it's not all just the ugly negative things. And analysis of power relationships is not the, the whole story. Yeah. Uh, Rita Felsky, who actually teaches English literature at UVA, has a book that's helpful on this, thinking about English literature, called The Limits of Critique. And no, to tie this into that. the conversation that we just had, one of her arguments is that if all you do is attack the literature that you're studying, what you do is you get rid of the opportunity to love it. Yes. Uh, and so <laughs> instead it just becomes something that you attack. Uh, an object of critique instead of possibly an object for love. Well, speaking of love, if you loved this episode, uh, we would be so grateful <laughs> if you would uh, let people know about that. And a great way to do that is to give us a rating on uh, Apple Podcasts or any of the other podcast places where that you can listen to things. And we're so grateful for Professor Levinson for taking his time with us. And yes, please do run out right now and pick up The Love of God uh, or order it on Amazon. However you can get your hands on it is really a helpful book. The Two Testaments is produced with support from Sanford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to you, our fellow travelers, who support this journey by donating on our website, thetwotestaments.com. Thanks also to Cam Thomas, Joe Zelda, and the team in the Sanford Faculty Success Center and our student assistants for their help with production, editing, and promotion.